Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the 1,000 Recordings podcast number 8. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and this week we're going to be getting into five new recordings uh, might be new to you, might be old to you, but uh, five new recordings from Tom Moon's book, uh, the uh, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, that's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, before I continue, I have to introduce my co-host. With me as always, the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Mitchell Davis. <laughs> I should get a t-shirt with that. <laughs> you know, How's everybody doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing good, man. Yeah, I had to um this week, number eight, <laughs> I had to start a word file with the adjectives that I've used. So I, I make sure that I don't repeat it. <laughs> because when I was when I was trying to come up with it today, I uh the first I don't know why, but the first word that entered my head was illustrious and i was like no i, I used that, that before yeah. That, yeah i used that on the first one so uh yeah i decided you know when, when we get up to like you know episode 120 i better have a record or <laughs> i'm not gonna remember um so anyway what's up everybody out there this is a kind of an unusual episode of uh of the show um usually we have five totally different albums and almost always the selection is really eclectic mix of a bunch of different genres on today's show we have almost all of it is one single artist johann sebastian bach with the exception of bad brains that we're going to listen to at the very end so tom moon put four albums of you know, music from Johann Sebastian Bach in here, which I think is great. Uh, to me, Johann Sebastian Bach is the greatest composer that ever lived in the history of humanity, but that's subjective. You know, that's just my own opinion. Um, but uh, what he did in his life and uh, the amount of music that he wrote was truly staggering. I mean, staggering is is a kind of an understatement. Um, he, he wrote around 1200 pieces of music and uh some of you know many of these pieces are multiple movements so you know you have like one piece of music that could be in five six seven movements uh you know like we're talking 20 30 minutes of music that's one piece yeah um, he sounds like he he was just tireless in his work i mean <clears throat> i mean that that's i i didn't know that he'd written that much you know just wow yeah i mean it's just it's unbelievable and uh really he was kind of the i don't know the 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 epitome of the art for his time you know um all the art that came before him he was sort of like the master of it all and uh ever since bach um really composers have been trying to measure up to what he did uh, ever since so bach uh if you don't know, was born 1685 and he died in 1750 in Leipzig, Germany. And uh, we're going to start with this um, 
album that Tom Moon uh, chose for the book, the Brandenburg Concertos. Uh, this album was recorded by the Concerto Italiano and released in 2005. And uh, yeah, the just a what, what did you? What was your overall impression of these, Mitch? Well, just uh, a great range of, of of style and 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 the way that the tracks come off. I mean, the, like this first one, for instance, um, I, I love, I, I love a, a choir, a big full choir when, when it has a piece like this and, and, and the harmonies and, and also the horns on this were just really beautiful. You, the way the trumpet and the, and the French horn, you can even hear in it, you know, just a, a, a wonderful mix. It just sounds like something, you know, that was, was done in, in like a really large church, where the acoustics were just you know perfect and you know for the time when it it was written i mean you know it was just a very lovely piece of music you know oh yeah i think you're talking about the mass oh yeah that that's one the mass and, and b minor that i think yeah. i think that's the one that i that i was thinking about yeah um, yeah so yeah we're going to talk about that um well i think that's in the book um that's fourth in the book we're going to start off with these brandenburg Concertos. Oh, okay. I'm I'm sorry. That's that's fine. <laughs> you can talk whatever, whichever Bach you want to talk about. Uh, that's <laughs> fine with me. Um, but uh, yeah, these Brandenburgs um, were written, uh, I guess, supposedly around 1719, 1720, and uh, at kind of the the request of the Margrave of Brandenburg which uh, Bach apparently visited this guy and was sort of kind of looking for a job from him. Um, and that's what composers did, you know, back in the day. That's that, that's who their employers were. The, their employers were the aristocracy and the royalty and also yeah. the church. And so, you know, that's where they would go to look for work. And uh, Bach visited this guy, played for him, and this guy said, hey, you know, why don't you send me some of your music? And so instead of sending him his music, Bach went back home and he wrote these six concertos, especially for this guy. Um, And these concertos were really revolutionary for their time because they were all different instrumentation. They were all concertos for different instruments. So I I should explain what a concerto is. A concerto is a piece of music for uh, a soloist or a group of soloists against an orchestra. If that makes sense. So okay, yeah. So there, there is some solo one or more soloists, um, sort of w- where they can show off their stuff. Uh, usually very virtuosic, um, with an orchestra kind of accompanying them. So that's what a concerto is. And uh, I, I should also say that the orchestra during this time is way, way smaller than it is now. So I mean, this is a lot. Uh, way before the orchestra, modern orchestra was codified. So these these orchestras, I say that in, with like you know sort of quotes because these orchestras are really really small compared to an orchestra that you would go see today. Um, so it was just maybe like say ten people total, you know, including the soloist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, um, you know. The composers during I just I, I find it fascinating because composers during Bach's time, you know, we see composers now as these 
in a lot of some people see them as like almost godlike figures, you know, but we hold them on these sort of really high pedestals as these great artists and all this stuff. You know, composers were not seen that way during Bach's time. They were servants. I mean, they were straight up servants to uh, to their employer, whatever <clears throat> aristocratic dude they worked for. They were they were seen the same as the cook or a bricklayer or or any other servant. And uh, I just find it kind of interesting and funny how, you know, people like Bach had to address these dudes. Um, And I'm actually going to read what Bach wrote to this guy. I'm reading this directly out of the score. Yes, I have a score to this piece. I'm a nerd. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, so I'm going to read this. And this is how, I mean, any composer from this time, even uh, up until through Mozart, you know, into Beethoven's time, uh, this is how they had to to do this. So he says, uh, this is in the score he sent to this dude. Uh, to his royal highness Christian Ludwig Margrave of Brandenburg, etc. They had to put the etc. in there because, you know, he he has a bunch of other titles. Um, Sire, since I had the happiness a few years ago to play by command before your royal highness and observed that at the time you derived some pleasure from the small musical talent that heaven has given me, and since, when I was taking leave of your royal highness, you did me the honor to request that I send you some of my compositions— I have therefore, in compliance with your most gracious demand, taken the liberty of tendering my most humble respects to your royal highness with with the present concertos, arranged for several instruments, begging you most humbly not to judge their imperfection by the strict measure of the refined and delicate taste in musical pieces that everyone knows you possess, but rather to consider kindly the deep respect and the most humble obedience which I am thereby attempting to show you. For the rest, sire, I beseech your royal highness most humbly to have the kindness to preserve your good will toward me, and to be convinced that I have nothing so much at heart as to be able to be employed on occasions more worthy of you and your service, since I am with matchless zeal, sire, your royal highness's most humble and obedient servant, Johann Sebastian Bach. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the... the uh, I mean, just the art of sucking up during yeah. this time w- w- was, yeah, it was just an art in itself. I mean, you know, what what uh, that what that kind of reminds me of is um, in in Amadeus where he was going back and forth in the in the film Amadeus, yeah, where he was looking for work and the way he had to haggle and kind of, you know, you know, basically like you said, suck up. But but even even more to the point in that, not to get away from it, was. You know, the fact that the people that he was seeking work from had no idea, you know, what good music was, you know. Yeah. And that's interesting that you bring that up because that exact same thing happened to Bach. You know, Um, Bach, uh, for most of his adult uh, life until his death, he worked in uh, Leipzig, uh, Germany for, uh, you know, the church there and also the school. And uh, he basically reported to the town council. So Leipzig was kind of uh, a little unusual in that it wasn't ruled by uh, an emperor or king or a duke or anything like that. It was ruled by this town council. And uh, the town council were just, just like a lot of these composers have to deal with, they were just sort of musical morons, you know. And, mm-hmm. and they, uh, many of them thought that Bach's music was a, 
you know, too complicated. They didn't understand it. You know, um, like like the emperor says in, in Amadeus, you know, it has too many notes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Bach had to contend with that and, and contend with, uh, you know, people trying to get him out and not, you know, not wanting his music to be performed, blah, 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 blah. He had to contend with this. And at the same time, he had to kiss their ass, mm-hmm. you know, to get anything done. Um, so uh, anyway, <laughs> um, we're going to start with this uh Concerto number five, this Brandenburg Concerto number five in D major, BWV ten fifty, um, and yeah, you know these titles are a little weird and impersonal, but um, you know they have these BWV numbers, BWV ten fifty. This is just a cataloging system, basically, because because uh, he had so much. <laughs> well, he had so much, and he didn't really his titles weren't very specific. He just called this concerto, and so you mm-hmm. know if you. Uh, say hey you know i want to listen to that bach concerto <laughs> you know which which one you know there's yeah. you know a hundred or there's i'm sure more you know so it's almost like if, if if it was something that could be warehoused and shelved it's like oh yeah that's that's down there let me go get that it's 1050s on this uh, yeah i mean it, that that in itself lets you kind of get an understanding of how much music he was putting out and and the pace of of which it was he he had to just okay. Here we go. Let me just slap a title on this, just so I know which one it is. You know, it may seem like you said kind of impersonal, but if I have to go find it, you know, here it is. You know, rather yeah. than just you know which one was that. You know, so right, right, and I, and and also um, I have to say that the cataloging system. You know, Bach didn't put this on his own pieces. Um, this wasn't this wasn't done until oh more than a hundred years after he died. Um, it was done by a musicologist. Yeah, I don't know the dude's name. Some German musicologist um, cataloged all of this work by Bach and attempted to put it in some kind of chronological order. It's not perfect because there are no dates on these pieces, but um, and so that's that's basically what that is. Uh, and, okay. Yeah, and so people just don't realize. I remember like uh, when we worked at the music store. Oh, uh, one time I was in there and, you know, I worked at two different locations of that place and I was always put in charge of the classical section because I was always the only one that knew anything about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember when we were working at that store, uh, this lady came in one afternoon and she had just heard this piece on the classical radio station and it was by Mozart. And she said, I'm looking for this piece. I just heard it. It's by Mozart. It's something, something in C major. And I said, okay. Um, <laughs> That's you... like somebody coming in. Hey, you know what? I heard this song. It was kind of slow and it had love in the title. Can you help me find that? It, exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's like okay, here's the entire R&B section. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, can you be more specific? And she's like, well, no. You know, it was just, it was something in C major. I was like, well, you know, he has probably hundreds of pieces in C major and, and, uh, it needs to be more specific. And she actually got really, really mad uh-huh. because, because she felt like, I don't know. She, she felt, um, I don't know how she, how she felt, but she, she got like really you were talking frustrated. Down, maybe like you were talking down to her. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I totally understood where she was coming from. Cause you know, my knowledge of classical music was at her, her le- knowledge level at, at one point, you know, I understood, but I was trying to explain to her at the same time, you know, 
how these pieces work. And, you know, in the end, she kind of stormed out. And I was like, man. Uh, yeah. So any, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, back to this concerto number five in D major. Um, <clears throat> one of the uh, really cool things about this concerto and, and the really revolutionary thing about this concerto is that this was the first concerto for a keyboard instrument ever in history of music. Wow. So, um, you know, now it's a totally common thing if you go to the orchestra to hear a piano concerto, let's say of Mozart or Beethoven or uh, any number of composers. Uh, It's a standard thing to hear for orchestra now, a concerto for a keyboard instrument, usually piano and orchestra. Uh, Piano... Uh, many people don't know this piano didn't exist during Bach's time um, this is before the piano was invented um, so the main keyboard instrument of this time was harpsichord okay and uh, you know harpsichord and harpsichord like instruments had existed you know for hundreds of years before this but they were always used as what's called continuo instruments these are like um, instruments that provide the harmony like the chord so almost like a jazz trio like where if you have a jazz trio of piano, bass, and saxophone, let's say, um, the piano player is going to be looking at what's called a lead sheet where they're going to have a bunch of chords. That's all they'd get. It's like a bunch of chord symbols. And then the piano player improvises a harmonic accompaniment, right? So that, <clears throat> the, that the saxophone player solos over. Um, this is exactly how the music worked back back then. The continuo was just, all it was was a bass line with some numbers underneath the notes. And from that sort of shorthand, it told the continuo player or the harpsichord player um, what harmonies they were supposed to play. And they would improvise a harmonic accompaniment in the same way. Um, And that's what the harpsichord was used for prior to this. To have the harpsichord as a solo instrument like this was totally like people would have been like, what? This is supposed to, like, what is the keyboard doing? This is, they're supposed to be the, you know, continual. So this was totally revolutionary idea. And like I said, the the very first keyboard concerto ever. Um, yeah, so um, I don't know. Anything you want to say about this? No, we uh, we probably should play it. I mean, it's, we, we've, we've talked quite a bit. And I, I think that uh, the w- one thing I would like to do is, is, is kind of hear it and, uh, and then maybe say something afterwards, but um, you know, definitely a lot of good history. I, I I had no idea about the 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 subject of the piano not being a part of it, or or this being the first piece for for a keyboard at all. You know, I'm I mean, a you know, concerto like this, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, so uh, you yeah. know, let, let's let's go ahead and listen to it. Okay, man. So this is the first movement from the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5 and D Major BWV 1050 of Johann Sebastian Bach.
And we just heard Concerto Number no. 5 in D Major, BWV 1050. And uh, what we heard there was the last part of what's called the cadenza for the keyboard. That's like an any concerto that you'll hear, even one written this year. Um, all concertos have this section called cadenza. And that what cadenza is, is where the soloist, in this, um, in this instance, the harpsichord player, the soloist just goes off by themselves. So the orchestra stops playing and the soloist can just show off what they can do. It's usually, you know, really virtuosic. And so we heard um, the tail end of the harpsichord cadenza going into the last part of that uh, movement. So, um, yeah, so let's move on to the concerto number three in G major, BWV 1048. So this one... Uh, it does have harpsichord in it, but it's in the more traditional role of continuo. And this is for strings. So this is this is a really a concerto for strings, almost like a quartet of strings. Um, in fact, a, a lot of people today, a lot of string quartets play this piece today. But it wasn't uh, scored for a modern string quartet. But um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, what did you think of this one? Um listening to it, I mean, you know, I I love the way the, the arrangement of the strings is just, you know, very, very nice. Uh, you know, I I I would love to um definitely you know hear some more from this total piece, you know, after just going through just a few tracks because what I heard so far I like a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah, that's with these kind of albums, man, it's so hard to get a sense of the whole thing just from playing a couple excerpts. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, but uh, but yeah, let's let's check this one out. This is like I said, just for strings. This is the third movement of this concerto, and man, the the concerto italiano just ripped this thing. I mean, they just play it just soup. This is about the fastest I've ever heard this played, and it's just it's just smoking the tempo that yeah. they play. So breakneck speed. Yeah, yeah. So let's check this out. The third movement of the uh, third Brandenburg concerto. Thank you. 
And we just heard the Allegro from Concerto Number no. Three, Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Three in G Major, BWV, uh, the, the BWV <laughs> ten forty eight. I always get tripped up saying that. Um, and we're going to move on to our second album of Bach, the Sonatas and Partitas for solo violin. Um, these are played by violinist Arthur Grumiao. I think Grumio. It's French, and I cannot say French. Um, <laughs> Arthur Grumio, I think. Um, so this album was released in 1961, uh, reissued in 2007. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic recording of these pieces for solo violin. So these are pieces um, for violin and nothing else. Um, and there are many different sonatas and partitas of multiple movements each. Um, so we're going to start with the partita number three in E major BWV 10006, the prelude. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is, you know, Bach, uh, again, you know, wrote these pieces for solo instruments, which were really unusual at the time. These pieces for solo violin. He also wrote the, uh, suites for solo cello, um, uh, some pieces for flute and, uh, you know, to write these pieces that are so, like, you know, huge in conception for such a small instrument and, and really kind of a limited instrument. You know, violin is really an instrument made to play melodic lines. It's not designed to play chords and, you know, harmonic progressions and these kind of things. Uh-huh. Um, and you get all that and more in these pieces, you know, for this... Uh, this little instrument. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is, um, uh, part of a Baroque suite. So what that means is like, it's like a collection of pieces that always starts with a prelude and then it's followed by a bunch of pieces that are in the rhythmic meters of dances of the time. So you could have like, um, a jig and you can have a minuet and you can have a, Beret and all these dances that were popular at the time, and you so that's what the, how these would go. They, you know, you'd have a prelude and then this dance, this this dance, this 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 dance, this dance, which would make up the entire suite. Um, and uh, this is one of Bach's most popular pieces right here. I mean, the Bach himself made a bunch of transcriptions of this piece. You know, like uh, versions of it for lute versions for harpsichord organ um bigger ensembles so uh yeah it was one of his kind of one of his greatest hits so i don't know do you have anything to say about this one no i i'd I'd like to go ahead and listen to this one as well yeah let's just check this out and see what we're getting into uh this is the prelude from partita number three in e major bwv 10006 
And we just heard Partita number three, uh, the prelude. And uh, yeah, that's just, I love that piece. I just love that piece. Um, I've played it myself on guitar. Um, and uh, it, that piece is just a, it's like a, it's like uh, audible joy is what I think of it. It's just like, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. It's, 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 oh man, I love that piece. Um, the, the second piece we're going to listen to is from the partita number two in D minor, which we all know is the saddest of all keys. Um, BWV 10004. This is from the last movement of the Chacon. And this piece is one of the most monumental pieces ever written, <laughs> um, ever. And it, it's mind blowing that it was written for the violin for again, this small limited instrument. Um, I should, I should explain what a Chaconne is. Chaconne is like a, a piece that is a variations over a repeating chord progression. That's what a Chaconne is. So you have this chord progression that repeats and then you have all these variations over it. So right there, I mean, how do you do that for a solo violin? You know what I mean? How do you have a repeated chord progression plus melody plus counterpoint in variations on one violin? It's just it's just crazy. Um, you know, this piece, <clears throat> I wanted to read you a couple quotes uh, about this piece. One from uh, violinist Joshua Bell. He's one of the um, biggest concert violinists in the world right now. And uh, he says of this piece, um, he says, it's not just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, but one of the greatest achievements of any man in history. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a spirit, it's a spiritually powerful piece, emotionally powerful and structurally perfect. Um, and then I wanted to read you this quote from Johannes Brahms. Johannes Brahms, one of the greatest composers of classical music in history, a late 19th century. Um, and he said about the Chaconne, on one stave for a small instrument, the man writes a whole world of the deepest thoughts and most powerful feelings. If I imagined that I could have created, even conceived the piece, I'm quite certain that the excess of excitement and earth shattering experience would have driven me out of my mind. <laughs> that's, that's very high praise. I yeah. Would say. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this piece, and really, I mean, um, if you look at the, the, the entire piece is, quite long this version is about 13 minutes it depends on you know how slow or how fast the performer takes it i've i've seen i've heard performances of this that are just under 10 minutes and i've heard performances that are around 20 minutes so i mean you know there's there's a lot of leeway but this this one is around 13 and uh yeah it it just the piece is just it's just staggering what 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 bach does with this and on this little instrument um yeah yeah anything you want to say about this before you well, play it when when you posted this on my my wall um on my facebook wall earlier this week i mean i just thought it was excellent i i never really heard anything like it um you know and and even still i mean because i only really listened to it a couple of times you know i really didn't get the the full gist of what was going on but i know just when i first heard it, i was like man this is just amazing you know i mean you you kind of take for granted um what he was doing you know especially for the the time where he did it you know i mean you hear it 
it just sounds really great. I mean, just just an awesome piece. But but nothing like that had really been done before. And I, I didn't know that. I I thought maybe that's just the way it was supposed to be, you know, but it, it obviously it's not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- this piece was was unprecedented, you know, when when Bach wrote it. And I mean, really, I mean, nothing of this scope has has ever been written since or or might not ever be written. I mean, it's it's just that um amazing of a feat. So, you know, we're going to play an excerpt of this, you know, it's about a minute and a half. But uh I urge the listeners to listen to the whole thing cuz man, you cannot get a sense of what this piece is unless you listen to it from the beginning to the end. Um, so anyway, let's check out this excerpt from Partita Number no. Two in D Minor, BWV ten zero zero four. This is the Chaconne. We just heard the Chaconne from box Partita number two in D minor. Another thing I wanted to mention, which is really interesting, there's a video on YouTube of Joshua Bell playing this piece, but he's playing it uh, kind of incognito uh, in front of a hidden camera in a train station in Washington, D.C. during rush hour. Hmm. It's really interesting, man, because he's playing this piece. This is one of the world's greatest violinists, that, you know, alive today. 
playing one of the most monumental pieces ever written for the instrument. And man, people are just oblivious. I mean, totally. They're just uh, totally oblivious, just walking past, ignoring him. Um, it's almost like they're not even hearing, you know, what's going on. It's, hmm. it's kind of interesting to, to watch. But um, yeah, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's move on to uh, the third album, again, of Johann Sebastian Bach. This is the Well-Tempered Clavier, book one, played by pianist Till Fellner. This was released in 2004. And, you know, a lot of, when I was younger and just getting into classical music, this this title perplexed me. You know, Well-Tempered Clavier, what does that mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, um, it, it, it's, you know, once you learn a little bit about the, about the history and stuff, uh, it makes sense, but... You know, you kind of have to learn a, a lot about the history, but to, to make it as short explanation as possible, um, cool, cool. Clavier is just the German word for keyboard. So a clavier, you can think of that as piano or any keyboard instrument. Well-tempered, this means, uh, this is a system of tuning. It's called a well-temperament. And, and m- most people don't know this, but, you know, today we can sit down at a piano, at any piano or any instrument, and we can play anything we want to in any key we want. So, you know, to us today, we're like, well, so what? Um, back in box time in previous, this was not possible because the, the, our modern system of tuning, which is called equal temperament, which is really close to well temperament, uh, had not been developed yet. So yeah. so Bach, the, the tuning systems of the time would basically, you could tune an instrument to play in maybe three keys they would be relatively in tune but once you went outside of those three keys it would be completely out of tune so mm. you could not sit down and play a piece and what what the well-tempered clavier is it's 24 pieces uh each piece is a prelude and a fugue in every major and minor key and so bach was developing this tuning system called well temperament and he wrote a bunch of pieces um to kind of sh- he was really pushing the system of tuning because he wanted to be able to play in any key that he wanted, you know? Um, okay. So uh, one of the purposes of this was to show people, Hey, look, I can play this prelude and fugue in C major. And then I can play this play- prelude and fugue in F sharp major. And they're both going to be in tune. Look, you know, start using, he was, he was urging people, you know, start using this tuning system because it was by far, it was far from standard at the time, you know, not, not very many people were using it, um, so that's that's what that means. Well-tempered, well-tempered clavier. It means the clavier that can play in any key is basically okay. what it means. Um, right. Which again was revolutionary for the time. Um, and uh, again, so this book one is uh, twenty-four preludes and fugues in all keys, all major and minor keys. And uh, we're going to start with. Um, this prelude in C minor, BWV 847. And uh, yeah, let's just check this out. Why don't we just check this out? All right. Okay, so this is uh, the prelude in C minor, BWV 847. Thank you. 
And that was the Prelude in C minor, BWV 847. And, you know, the Preludes were where Bach really got to show off how he could move harmony around. Yeah. Um, you know, even Beethoven himself referred to Bach as the immortal god of harmony. Um, you know, that's that's coming from Beethoven. Um, so, like I said, each piece starts with this prelude. And then it follows a fugue. So, you know, there's a prelude in C minor and then there's a fugue in C minor. But we're going to listen to the fugue in D sharp minor, BWV 853. What did you think of this one? Uh, just lovely. That That's the thing that I took from it. You know, when, when you can take harmony in, in any kind of music and make it work. And I'm, I'm assuming that's that's where the the title is is kind of focused. You know, he. He had something very specific in mind and, and had, you know, a, a particular harmony that he wanted and, and probably wasn't going to be satisfied until he got there. And, uh, you know, that's that's really something that, you know, I guess as a, a conductor, composer, musician, whatever, you know, is something that, that you're constantly driving towards, you know, if, if you want a particular harmony. And, um, and like you said, at the time where there was not a, a standard tuning process for I guess the, the the keyboard or harpsichord or whatever you know that that was something I'm sure he he worked on probably a lot you know probably just drove him you know into the night a lot of nights where he just would not give up you know on yeah. on getting what he wanted yeah definitely I mean what one one of the things that Bach was a master of and what Beethoven is referring to when he calls him the immortal god of harmony um is that, you know, all this music was kind of, it can be sort of boiled down to a journey from the one chord to the cadence, which would be like, you know, the 5-1, the which you get in all music, you know, popular music, or whatever, everything ends on 5-1. That's the cadence, you know, five mm-hmm. chord, one chord. Um, and so what you get is the one chord. So if you have a piece in like this one, D-sharp minor, the first chord is going to be D-sharp minor, and it's a it's so this piece is a journey from D sharp minor all through all this stuff back to D sharp minor. And what Bach was such a master of is delaying that final cadence and coming up with endless um, inventiveness of, you know, moving around the harmony and journeying through harmonies and all this stuff uh, on his way to that final cadence, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, this is no exception, but this is a special piece. And I have to talk about this a little bit. Um, this piece is a fugue. And what a fugue is, and Bach was the absolute master of fugues uh, of all time. You know, since, before, he's the complete master of fugue. What a fugue is, is kind of how it works, is um, the fugue always starts off with a single melodic line that's called the subject of the fugue right it's just this single melodic line all by itself you know not accompanied and then so you hear that subject and then that subject comes in again in a different voice um or a different you know part of the instrument and um, a little bit higher in pitch level and then on the original line you get the counter subject which is a completely new melody that you know all these melodies can work on their own but they also work in concert with each other it's almost like puzzle pieces that fit together mm-hmm. and so that's how a fugue works you get the subject then you get the subject again in counter subject and then you get the subject in another voice so you'll have you know 
four or five voices going on at the same time, all separate melodies, all doing their own their own things, their own rhythms and all this stuff, but all working together, like fitting together like a puzzle. And um, it, it's almost like the ultimate test of a composer's skill, you know, to, to do something like this. And Bach wrote, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of fugues in his life. And so this is one of them. And like you said, this is just, man, it's just darkly, hauntingly beautiful, this one. Yeah. 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 Very solemn, very quiet, almost just something, you know, meditative. That That's one of the things I took from it, too. I mean, you know, if you just really want to get kind of, you know, to your own self and to your own thoughts, this is a great piece of music to sit down and do that with. I mean, that I, 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 was my first time hearing it. And um, I think out of all the, the things that we heard, it, it may be my favorite. You know, it's just very, very quiet, you know, but but intense and, and, and melodic, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. So let's check this out. Uh, Box Fugue and D-sharp minor BWV 853 from the Well-Tempered Clavier. We just heard Fugue in D-sharp minor, BWV 853. And we're going to move on to our final album of Bach. This is Bach's towering Mass in B minor, BWV 232. Uh, one of Bach's last pieces that he wrote in uh, 1749, uh, before his death in 1750. This album uh, is the chorus and orchestra of the Collegium Vocale released in 1998 and so yeah this piece is for very large chorus large orchestra in box time um it would have probably not been performed by such large forces just because they probably didn't have forces that large um but today when it's performed it's performed you know 
very often today. Uh, it's usually performed by big chorus, big orchestra with vocal soloists and, and instrumental soloists. And it's just a huge, huge work um, that's, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how long the whole thing is, probably around an hour or an hour and a half, something like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. What are your impressions of this piece? Uh, love love the choir sounds. It's like the, the big choral sound. I, I've always loved that. And uh, and I, like I was saying earlier, the, the way the horns mix in with that, it very, very, very nice. Very beautiful piece. Um, you know, what you were saying earlier about the orchestra's not being as large, for him to have a, a vision of of being able to to put this all together without actually hearing it the way you would hear it with the modern orchestra or even the modern choral setting was was pretty impressive. Um, and I, I, like I said, I love the sound of a, of a big choir piece like this where you have all the different, you know, harmonies mixing the soprano and baritone and uh, I, there's nothing like it. I mean, especially when you have a nice piece like this one. Yeah, definitely. Um, Bach wrote this piece, you know, he wrote sections of it, like I said, at the end of his life, but it's largely kind of a collection of pieces that he put together that he had written over the course of his life. So really this piece is almost like a life, a culmination of a life's work for Bach, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's, it's pieces that he wrote almost on his deathbed. And then there's pieces in there that he wrote as a young man. And there's pieces in there that he wrote as a middle-aged man. Um, and, you know, it's all assembled into this one large, uh, big piece. So we're going to start um, with the Kyrie eleison from this mass. That's Latin for Lord have mercy. And, um, yeah, this piece is just has this real kind of plaintive kind of asking quality to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the section I'm going to play is uh, this tail end of this instrumental section into this vocal fugue so again we get a fugue in this but instead of it being it for an instrument it's for the voices um and uh this curie liaison is just like i said it's 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 just beautiful yeah so, it is so you we, we should yeah let's just check it out um, this is the curie liaison from box mass and b minor bwv 232 
And we just heard Kyrie Eleison from Mass and B minor, BW232 of Bach. Uh, and you know, it's it's amazing that this piece even exists. And I say that because this is a mass in the Catholic style. So this is a mass according to the Catholic Church. It's sung in Latin. And uh, since about 1520s, um, Germany was Lutheran. And hmm. the, you know, the the church that he went to wrote for the community he lived in was staunch, staunch Lutheran. And that's what he wrote all his life, all his vocal pieces, his cantatas, his is chorales, all that stuff. You know, it's, it, they're in German. It's, it's, they're on, uh, you know, Martin Luther's, uh, you know, v- melodies that he wrote for the church. And, uh, this is a giant Catholic mass and, mm-hmm. uh, it's not, uh, the circumstances and of, of why Bach would write a big Catholic mass are kind of still in debate, you know, uh, among musicologists, not quite clear, you know, why he, why he did this, why such a staunch, staunch Lutheran would write a big Catholic mass like this. Um, so it is kind of lucky that we have this. And just a, a little story, another thing that most people don't know, um, Bach, you know, we all know Bach's name today. And, you know, Bach, one of the most famous classical composers, whatever. But after Bach's death, his music was largely forgotten. Um and it was largely forgotten for about a hundred years. It wasn't until about 1850 when the romantic composer Felix Mendelssohn revived Bach's music with this piece, the Mass in B minor. He he put on a performance of the Mass in B minor, um, and it just sparked this whole new uh, interest in Bach's music. But for about a hundred years, everybody forgot Bach. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, and I mean, I'm I'm just guessing, you know, if, if it was just an issue of uh, where someone offered him, say, like a fee, you know, to to do it. And even though conventionally it was not normally what he would do, you know, because it was like you said, you know, he they had to just take work sometimes from time to time where they could. Maybe that could have been the situation. I, I'm not for sure, you know. Oh, no. I mean, that was absolutely the situation. In fact, you know, when Bach was alive, um, a lot of these pieces that we've listened to, Well-Tempered Clavier, the solo violin partitas and all this stuff, he just did on his own because he he wanted to. The pieces that really earned him the money were the pieces that were the, like the cantatas and all this stuff that he wrote for church. And that's what he had to do as part of his job. And, you know, if his employers, the town council of Leipzig or whatever, came to him and said, you know, OK, we want you to write uh, piece for this Sunday. It's got to be on this melody of Martin Luther, and it's got to be this, this, and this. That's what Bach had to do. Mm. You know that, that. I mean, he was a servant. That's what I'm saying. He he was an absolutely a servant to these people, and he had to do what he was told. Um, so you know, a, a lot of his um, more freer music and instrumental music, he just did on his own. You know, because no one was, no one called for a bunch of pieces written for solo violin. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, yeah. no one called for a bunch of pieces written for solo cello and on and on and on. He just did it because he wanted to. But um, it was almost like those were the things he did in his free time, you know, apart from his real job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, this uh, we're going to play this uh, Sanctus from the Mass. And uh, this one is 
really, uh, as opposed to the Kyrie eleison, this is really sort of grand and like monumental um, section um, that also has a fugue, also has a vocal fugue in it again. Um, yeah, anything you want to say about this one before we hear it? No, let's just go ahead and spin the track. All right, so this is the Sanctus from Mass in B minor, BWV 232 of Johann Sebastian Bach. We just heard the Sanctus of the Mass in B minor from Bach, and uh, that's going to do it for our Bach this week. <laughs> if you haven't had enough, uh, and and now for something completely different, uh, way different, <laughs> <laughs> bad brains. So I love that we get to end with this after talking about all this Bach. I just love it. Um, this is from their album Eye Against Eye, released in 1986. And uh, yeah, what do you think of Bad Brains? Uh, hardcore punk rock pioneers, uh, basically. Uh, from Washington, D.C., D.C. punk scene, you know, basically was, you know, one of those things that, you know, you, you can't think about it without thinking about Bad Brains. I mean, they they had such a unique style where, you know, most, you know, hardcore punk bands were, you know, power chords, but they kind of mixed a lot of different music, uh, you know, uh, punk rock as well as reggae and, you know, metal. And, and I guess you would even say some some hip hop or rap style with with uh, vocalist uh, HR. Um, and they're, they're just one of those groups that they've been through lots of changes as far as the lineup. You know, two members have pretty much been the same, but, uh, 
you know, they're they're one of those groups that uh, when they first came out, they, there was nobody like Bad Brains. Nobody um, influenced a lot of people. Uh, Beastie Boys, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fishbone. Uh, you know, they they're just one of those groups that they have just such an awesome sound uh, and very tight, very tight. If you if oh, you yeah. ever seen any footage of them, they I mean, they are incredible as, as far as uh, their their skill and playing and and the speed of what they play. And, you know, they kind of have some songs that they're almost like a stop start rhythm where where most people would, you know, they would they would fall off the stage trying to trying to play like that. Uh, so. Um, yeah. really awesome group bad brains yeah and they came up in a, a, a really important punk scene in washington dc you have to say um there's a lot of other important bands that came out of that scene um like black flag and minor threat and uh yeah an, an important sort of spot for that that music yeah and, and i i know that um you know black flag even though black flag was really sort of more like I think they were they were really based in California, but Rollins was he was born in well yeah 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 in DC Henry, yeah Henry Rollins was, he was uh, born in DC. I think he he actually sang with with HR on stage a few times. They I think they kind of were like kind of like really really close uh, according to what I I look at in in the in the history of that band where uh, before um, Rollins because Rollins apparently sang another band before Black Flag before he he came into that band. Uh, you know, he was he was with another group in D.C., but um, yet and still, you know, they 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 were just one of those groups that, you know, they they help bring, you know, hardcore punk rock to a whole a whole different level. You know, I mean, you know, and then, like you said, that that city, you know, they spawned a lot of groups, minor threat with with Ian McKay and, you know, so many bands that that came up where, you know, kids that that just hated what was on the radio and, and what was, you know, being, you know, I guess marketed as, as good music and just wanted something just totally, you know, totally different. Like we said at the beginning of this, you know, they bad brains, they were, they were definitely that. Um, and their, their singer, um, HR, who was, who's kind of like one of the, the focal points of why the band was kind of in and out. They, they, the, they had like kind of a tension where, do we do reggae? Do we do punk rock? Do we do both or do we do nothing? You know, and, and I think that's yeah. one of the reasons why, you know, I've, I've, I've heard about them having, you know, some some horrible meltdowns, you know, but when they're together, man, they're, they're just tough. Yeah, definitely. Um, the first track, track we're going to listen to is I Against I, the title track. And yeah. uh, this is like. This just when I hear about hardcore punk, especially uh, DC hardcore punk, this track right here, this is exactly what I think of. You know what I mean? Just the sound yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of this? Uh, it's just the 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 one song that that I I always tie to them. You know, whenever I I think about them, that's it's just the first song I think about. I mean, you know, as as far as the 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 scale of of how their music was, how the the vocals you know came out from from hr i mean you know just just an awesome song i mean even even now you know you know some 20 something years later you know just just such a great song you know i mean yeah and i mean just 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 blistering you know the way the the pace changes and you know there, there's so much going on just in this one song that you know it's 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 hard to you know 
put it all into words, you know. So I guess we should just just play it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, th- definitely. That's what got me about the song. Is it's not even three minutes long, and the number of changes that it goes through in, in this, like you know, two minutes and fifty seconds or something, is just is amazing. Yeah. Um, so here it is. Yeah, let's check it out. Eye against eye, bad brains. <laughs> just heard eye against eye from bad brains and we're going to move on to reignition and uh this song you know it's a little longer than most of the other songs on the album uh and i i have a really hard time explaining this song or or categorizing it It, it's such a mix of stuff and uh but really unique and cool and how do you i don't know man how would you describe the thing that the thing that comes to to the front for me on this song is Doctor No, the the guitar player. He he is a badass. I mean, it, it's almost like uh, his his guitar is like a machine gun. The way the song sounds, you know, and um, yeah, I, I think that that they just had such a great mix of of, of unique talent in this one band. Um, their 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 bass player Daryl and. And then the drummer, um, I think his name is Earl. I think the drummer and and the vocalist, uh, HR, they they're like brothers. Um, they all had their own, you know, kind of special thing that they brought to the table. And um, you know, it, it, it like I said, they they just were they were just very unique in in their stage presence, especially if if you I've 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 really only seen Bad Brains once and it was not the original lineup. They they opened uh, for for Living Color in the early '90s, and oh, I would have uh, loved to have seen that show. Yeah, it was it was pretty good, despite the fact that it was not the original lineup. HR had uh, 
had uh, another thing that he was doing, I think, uh, like a reggae style band. And, and his brother was, I don't think he was in the band either on the drums. But uh, Dr. No and, and, and Daryl Jennifer was was uh they were still there they're they're the two constants uh dr no i think and daryl jennifer the bass player they're they're the two constants in bad brains that have never really left the band as as far as i can tell but it was it was still a really really great great show i mean they uh they had so much energy man and when they 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 came out on stage the the crowd was just just totally into that, and that was one of those legendary unicorn shows. I don't know if you oh, remember yeah. unicorn, yeah, which was yeah. uh, they had taken a a, a Kroger supermarket. <laughs> I, I guess I, I I it's okay for me to say it, but anyway, it was a supermarket that they had converted into a concert hall, and uh, yeah, that, yeah, I saw um, I saw uh, oh, who, who was it? It was um. Primus, Anthrax, and Public Enemy. Oh, uh, I was at that show. <laughs> Were you? I didn't. I didn't yeah. see you there. I was there. Yeah, I was there too. But yeah, yeah. that was a that was an awesome <laughs> venue. Yeah, that that I saw so many so many crazy shows. That the, I saw the Beastie Boys there. That was the first time I saw uh, I saw them there. But a- anyway, um, you know, th- I, we I actually got to talk a little bit to. To the band that night they were they were pretty cool it seemed like there was a little tension between them and and living color for some reason or another that night but uh but anyway uh bad brains they they have an awesome live show and i and from what i understand they they have another record that that's supposed to come out and i think like a box set of like their seven inch singles uh so i'm i'm thinking about trying to look for that just to try to catch up with you know what they they've done over the past and 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 hopefully you know what they have coming out new but uh um, yeah how, how was living color oh they were great that living color too they their lineup actually was different too that was um doug wimbush living color who doug wimbush if people don't know is just like one of those awesome bass players that uh had had played sessions with a lot of different people and uh living color's original bass player decided to to bow out when they went on their other tour and 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 came up with them and that was that was awesome there was this oh, the um, stain tour yeah or, um, yeah I, that was the that stained album that had um i'm trying to think of the the main track that came from that album the original the first track that came i can't remember the name of the song I don't but either. that but but that was the one that kind of had like the red cover yeah uh where the cd case was red and uh you know just i i just i love them man vernon reed is He's just—he's so underrated. I think as a guitar player, he's—he was very good that night. They were all really good. Yeah, and, you know, um, Vernon Reed's amazing. I, I love Living Color and and Vernon Reed. Um, yeah, but but anyway, back to Bad Brains. Um, yeah, I don't know. Let's just let's just check this out. This this cool okay. track that I, that I'm having trouble explaining it. Um, <laughs> this is uh, Reignition by Bad Brains. Right. 
And we heard Reignition by Bad Brains. And that's going to do it for this week. Episode number eight of the 1000 Recordings podcast. Uh, any parting thoughts on Bad Brains? Uh, you know, definitely if you if you get to check out Bad Brains, if you haven't already. I know a lot of people have seen Bad Brains time and time again. Go go see them because you never know. You know, they may break up again. They, they may be breaking up right now. Uh, you know, <laughs> so that you know they're just one of those groups that that have had a a very torrid history with each other but I, like i said when they they get together they are awesome they just a just an awesome group yeah awesome yeah I'd, I'd, I'd love to see them um so everybody send us an email at uh 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com uh, you can go to the website at 1000rp.blogspot.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp. And you can follow us on Facebook uh, where we post a lot of interesting extra stuff. Um, next week, there's a little preview. Uh, we've got, we're going to start off with Erica Badu. Yeah. Then Joan Baez, Anita Baker, Chet Baker, and the Belfa Brothers. So that's yes. going to be next week. It's a really good mix. Uh, I, I can't wait to talk about Rapture. Uh, Anita Baker's uh, very, very classic album from the 80s. It's just one of my favorite albums of all time. I love Rapture. Cool. I don't know that album, so I'll be I'll look forward to checking it out. I'm looking forward to talking about Mama's Gun. I, I like that album a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, anything else? I, I think I think I'm 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 gonna have Bach on the brain like the rest of the day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All, lots all, of lots of Bach today. <laughs> I, I know, man. All that Bach. Uh, yeah, me too, definitely. But um, we'll be back next week with more a uh, normal eclectic show, if that makes sense. Normal eclectic. Um, and uh, yeah, until next time. See everybody later. Bye bye, everybody. Okay. Yeah. Cool. We'll just um, start and get right into it. And I'll try. I'll try not to talk too much about the Bach stuff. <laughs>